Let's open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs. You can turn to Proverbs chapter 2. That's going to be our jumping off point this morning. And as we are acclimating, I want to remind you that we're in the midst of our series through Proverbs, as you've heard us heard mentioned in the comments before and in the prayers. And we are in the second section of this sermon series. So we spent the first section of our time in Proverbs looking at the wisdom speeches in chapters 1 through 9. And now we're looking at some of the thematic realities that Proverbs addresses through chapters 10 through 31. And my microphone is working against me, but now I think it's working for me, dear brother. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There should be a blue one, hardback one, near you on a seat rack, and you can find our text on page 528. So while we're getting there, I just want to reorient us again briefly here. Uh, After Caleb has preached so faithfully to us from uh, 1 John these last two weeks, So our goal in our second half of this series through Proverbs is to consider uh, all of the many couplets and illustrations, the parables, and yes, even small Proverbs that inform our hearts and our lives for how we ought to live wisely or godly in a broken world. And I want to remind you, friends, that, that Proverbs is a book of hope for people who are broken by their own folly, by the folly of others and by the foolishness of the world around us. You see, in Proverbs, God gives us a better vision for living in the world that he has made, even as this world is not our ultimate home. Proverbs is a tool of God to conform us into the image of his son Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we read and we reflect and we apply We grow as Christians who learn how to live wisely. And I would remind you of the definition we've returned to multiple times from Dwayne Garrett. What is wisdom? Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. So as we study and apply the Proverbs to our lives with God's promised help, we're developing skill in an art. So some of you were blessed to know and see that Ken Griffey Jr. had the most perfect swing in baseball history. It's captivating to watch. It's smooth. It was smooth, effortless, quiet, and effective. You can go on YouTube and look up a video, 20 minutes of Ken Griffey Jr. crushing baseballs. And that's 20 minutes well spent, in my opinion, I I would say. But but because even with his natural gifts and abilities, he did not wake up one day with that perfect music in motion swing. Like Griffey's swing, developing skill is how we grow in wisdom. It's part of growing in wisdom. So like Ken Griffey Jr., who dedicated his life to hitting a baseball, if we would learn wisdom, friends, hear me, it will take time, patience, dedication, and effort. This we have seen time and time again. This is why when we look around and even look in the mirror and see foolishness, we don't lose heart because the sage of Proverbs has been helping us see that week after week, there is immeasurable value in God's wisdom and there's deep joy and satisfaction for us as we seek that wisdom so that you and I can see how how hard it is to gain wisdom and say, whatever the cost, I want that. 
So we've seen begin, the wisdom's beginning in the heart, and then we looked a couple weeks back at how wisdom is displayed or denied through our words. And this week, we're going to consider how to be wise in our relationships. So with that in mind, follow along as I read Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding? Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path for wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. For men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil, And delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Relationships are amazing. They are an especially rich treasure the Lord has given to us. I I bet if you took even the briefest moments to ponder, you would be able to think of relationships in your life, either past, present, or present, that have been a tremendous blessing to you, that are a source of great joy for you, or have been a source of great joy for you. Relationships are amazing, and relationships are amazingly hard, right? The best relationships we have are often those that have experienced difficulty, turmoil, and yet remain. Standing the test of time, as it were. We know that many relationships can be temporary, sometimes changed by distance or life change, even death or any other number of factors. Some relationships are treasures that we only get to enjoy for a limited time. Some last a lifetime. Some end without warning, many end sooner than we'd like or sometimes linger longer than we would ever expect them to. But the one reality for each of us is that relationships are a part of everyone's life here. To differing degrees and in different ways, we are constantly surrounded by and involved in relationships. Just consider from what we read, the relationships that were directly and indirectly described in those 15 verses. The Lord and his people was related to us in Verse 6, parents and children, verses 1 and 2, to people individually and to society in verses 9, 12, and 15. You see, the, the, the biblical picture and the picture of the sage of Proverbs is that our life is a web of relationships that make up the fabric of our day-to-day living. The sage of Proverbs knows this, and he seeks to instruct us to live wisely within the fabric of our everyday lives in relationship with others. Yet I actually want to back us up a little bit because I want to consider this topic as we we address it from Proverbs by making this first claim. We 
were designed for relationships. You and I, all of us, were designed for relationships. So I I think the, the sage of Proverbs assumes that you and I know that. Remember, Proverbs is written to God's people, a people who are known by the Lord, who fear him because of the great love that he has set upon them. And many scholars place the original intent of Proverbs to be the first instruction manual for royalty, the kings of Israel, to their sons. Yet God has so richly filled this book with insight that goes far beyond palaces and into our everyday homes and lives. But that means that the author of Proverbs is arguing from a position building on Genesis 1 and 2 as a reality. They see this collection of wisdom saying as bricks laid upon a foundation that God has already given through earlier scriptures. So how in the world does that play into what I'm talking about today? Well, well, here's here's what I want to contend, that to understand how to have wisdom in our relationships and to apply wisdom to our relationships, the wisdom we just read about, We must first grasp, church, that we were actually made for relationships. Being made in the image of God. Doesn't mean we are gods, no. But it does mean that God has made us in his image and that we reflect who he is, the one true and living God. And our Christian confession is that God exists in perfect relationship for all eternity, even within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We affirm this in our statement of faith as a church, which reads, we believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine divine perfection and executing distinct and harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Distinct, And harmonious offices, one God, three persons, perfect communion. And we know that the Lord chose out of the overflow of his own glory and majesty to create humans in his image, in his likeness. We read this in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The triune God creates a being who is unique from everything else that he's made has a distinction of resembling the creator himself. Yet, just as quickly as we see this, we actually see the Lord do another amazing thing in Genesis 2. We read in Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said this. Listen to what the Lord says. It is not good that the man should be what? You probably know it. Alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And Adam's heavenly father builds his anticipation. I love Genesis 2. You should go back and read it this afternoon. He builds Adam's anticipation by a parade, right? So like he's like, I'm going to show you everything. I'm actually going to bring all the creation here. And Adam just starts naming stuff, right? And whatever he it says, whatever he named it, the Lord said, okay, sure. Duckbilled platypus, nailed it. Love it. That's very accurate. 
But like he's, he's, he, he builds the anticipation in the, in the narrative here and then tells us that there was in all of the creatures no helper suitable for him, no companion for him. So we know God causes Adam to sleep and creates another person. And Adam wakes up to see this marvelous wonder and, and gift of God's grace. Another person. Another image bearer. Like him and yet unique. Now Adam moved from alone to in community. To grasp how we ought to live in relationships wisely, you and, my, you and I must grasp that we were actually made for this. It's part of who we are. Because if you don't recognize that relationships are a part of God's intended purpose for you, I would, I would argue you'll never treat them in a way that God would instruct you to treat them. You see, isolation and loneliness, being alone is not a virtue to God. Rather, it is community and relationship where the Lord is going to bring about what's good for Adam and what he'll bring about what is good for us. For Adam, that was Eve. And as they related to one another, they reflected in even greater way the perfect relationship that was existing already in the perfection of God in his persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. But we know where this goes, right? Like, like we know Genesis 2 because we can count is followed by Genesis 3. We don't make it beyond another chapter before we see the poison of sin enter relationships. The relationship of Adam and God, then Adam and Eve, and even Adam and Eve in creation. So the author of Proverbs knows you and I were made to relate to God and to others. He also knows that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world where sin, foolishness, and wickedness exist all around us and even in us. Yet God is showing us, the author of Proverbs is showing us under God's inspiration that God is restoring our relationship to him and restoring our ability to have meaningful and life-giving relationships with others, with our friends, with our neighbors, with society, within our families. Friends, hear me, the answer to our own internal sinful hearts and sinful world around us is not to remove ourselves from relationships. It's not isolation. I would implore you, that is actually harmful to you, even sub-Christian. We don't see Jesus, the wisest of all, modeling withdrawal from relationships. No, his very incarnation speaks to intentional, purposeful relationship. I mean, remember the beginning of John's gospel, which we started 17 years ago when we started that journey. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isolation from God brings death. Isolation from others is folly, but relating to God, relating to others is a means of life, wisdom, and satisfaction. 
And casting a little bit farther forward, listen to how Jesus prays for his people to have a unique and incredible relationship experience in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these, verse 20 through 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved loved them even as you have loved me. I mean, are you hearing what Jesus is praying there? Jesus prays that you and I would experience glorious communion that he knew before creation. That we would be united to others in a restored, beautiful communion. I mean, what a prayer. I mean, what an invitation. Jesus, the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, prays to the Father that says, give them what we have. Give them what we have. And do you think Jesus prays too ambitiously? Or do you think he's praying carelessly? Do you think he prayed something that's going to end up failing or that the Father would deny? I don't think so. I think Jesus' prayer is meant for a joyful foretaste of what he has won for us through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Now, how does that relate to our work here in Proverbs? Well, it reinforces what I think the Proverbs have been showing us, that your most basic relationship is not horizontal, vertical. It's vertical. That your most important relationship is not horizontal, it is vertical. By horizontal relationships, I mean relationships with other humans. And by vertical relationship, I mean your relationship with God. Your human relationships in every form will always reap frustration, folly, and heartache as long as you are resisting the God who made you. I mean, let's return to the beginning of the, the book of Proverbs in one of its most famous statements, just one page over. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Friends, it's not ambiguous. Wisdom in any form does not come apart from a relationship to the Lord. Here the author uses that term fear that we explored and we learned is not terror but awe. It's revering the God who commands the winds and the waves and also says, you are my people. It is rightly worshiping God who is glorious in holiness and understanding the eternal reality of his matchless love for us in Christ. And for we on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we even know the greater love of God that would come through Jesus. Our fear, our awe of God is much greater as we behold the unfolding redemption plan that he's accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about how many times we saw wisdom personified in Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. And we were called time and time again to embrace lady wisdom and to flee lady folly. 
Our most basic relational need and our greatest relational privilege is to be the Lord's. That is the beautiful refrain of the Bible, that we are His people and He is our God. That fundamental relationship forms our understanding of ourselves and serves as the only basis for having hope for living wisely in relationship to other people. And just in case you don't know, I want to say this. The Lord desires us. The Lord desires you. You don't have to clean yourself up, improve yourself. You don't need to become someone different for him to accept you. No, the Lord is inviting you to come to him to be his child. If you would turn from sin, from running away from God and in repentance run to Him, you're not going to find a door slammed in your face. No, like the father ran to embrace the prodigal son who returned from the pig slop, our God embraces us as we run to Him. If you haven't trusted Christ this morning, dear friend, if you haven't received this gracious forgiveness in Jesus, you can today. And I would urge you, if you have questions about what that means, you can catch me after the service or ask someone that you've seen up here. We would love to talk more with you about what it means for you to have a relationship with God. Now, here's the reality, though. In our relationship to the Lord, He's done all the work. He made us, called us, saved us, sustained us. He's going to bring us home to heaven. That same reality does not translate to living wisely in all of our horizontal relationships. The Proverbs show with an unrelenting clarity that our horizontal human relationships, while essential, are fraught with difficulty and require effort. I'm not saying God plays no part in our everyday relationships, but rather that our ability to live wisely with others flows from our relationship to the Lord. That's why the text we read first, or the, the text we looked at first, the Lord possesses wisdom, offers the, it to those who seek it, and the instruction, insight, commandments illuminate the path for relationships that will benefit the child or destroy him. The Proverbs are filled with practical, we know this already, even funny instructions about relationships. We're going to get to those in just a minute. But at this point, I want to address something that that may seem out of order to some of you. The first and most important relationship we have seen is living wisely with the Lord. It is trusting Him. It is repenting of sin and placing our faith in Him, being His child. Many of us would then jump to the next tier of our most important relationships. So, whether we're married or have children, the family connections we have. We're going to look at that next week. Next week, we're going to talk about family wisdom. But some of us are as yet unmarried, especially the children among us here. Some of us are not yet. We're parents ourselves. But universally, all of us have the experience of relating to other people even friends and neighbors. So instead of working from the closest relationship out as we work through this, I'm going to work us from the out in. I want us to start from the farthest to move inward 
Because the wisdom of God for our relationships, for friends and neighbors, doesn't get checked at the door of your parenting or your marriages. It's not like, yeah, you don't, don't, don't bother all that friend and neighbor stuff. You don't need any of that for your marriage. I would argue that's kind of the start to how you can care for those more intimate relationships. The wisdom we have given for us for our friends and neighbors is consistent with and applies to our families. We'll build on that for next week. So let's turn to some of the practical wisdom God gives for us in relationships, which means I now get to read some of my favorite Proverbs that I believe prove that God made laughter. You may not laugh, but I think they're hilarious. Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Like you early rising loud talkers, like you need to understand that other people may curse you. And the problem isn't their sourness. It's your volume. That's the problem. So I have a friend whose wife for years has woken him up immediately and started singing, this is the day, this is, like in bed. And I applaud her for her commitment, right? And I applaud him for staying married for many years, right? I mean, it's amazing. I would not recommend any of you starting that in your neighborhoods or in your homes. Like, just don't, don't do that. Maybe you're, you take a train to work or you take your kids to school. My kids are going to hold me to this. It's totally fine to be quiet. I'm not saying be unsociable, but the VRE is a place for inside voices before 7 a.m., the whole train does not need you to be at 11 on the volume scale. Or, or what about this? Proverbs 25, 17. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house. Lest, sorry. Lest he have his fill of you and hate you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, it strikes me. Overstaying your welcome. Like, that's a real thing. And it's foolish. Some of you love having people over, staying long hours, lingering. This proverb does not condemn that. I'm not saying that. But it does bid you to remember to take it easy. A pastor friend of mine once told a story of having some church friends over who stayed so late that he finally had to say, I'm going to go brush my teeth and go to bed. Like none of the plain social cues that he was giving was helping, the ridiculous social unawareness of this family, all of that was working in that moment. Enjoy one another's hospitality. Yes, do that. But go home to your own house at a reasonable time. Notice the sage uses the word hate. You being uncaring to someone who's hosting you could actually breed hatred from them. And the sage doesn't blame the host. He blames the one being hosted for the foolishness. I mean, there is this theme that rises from these Proverbs, even through the humor that addresses how are we oriented in our relationships. The world tells us to look at every relationship through the lens of what it brings to us. God says our relationships are first about how we care for others. In our relationships to our friends and neighbors, we ought to be looking to care for them, not only seeking care from them. Society tells us to evaluate our relationships based solely on what they bring to us, not how we are serving others. That's the opposite of what we see in Scripture. 
Think about what Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Proverbs and Paul present a better way for us to think about relationships, a wise way to relate to others. Sure, relationships can and will bring you great benefit. But as we reflect God's sacrificial love towards us in relationships, we end up building up others, even as we receive great blessing. And relationships help us when life is hard, right? Think of this Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. While describing the reality of, friend, of a friend's love, this proverb assumes the fallenness of our world and how a true friend can be such a sustaining grace to us in the midst of adversity. A wise friend, a real friend, is not one who flees from us in our trouble, but sticks with us. Why? Because they're not thinking first of themselves. They're thinking of others. Do you have friends like that? Let me ask this. Are you that kind of companion to others? Living wisely in a broken world means living with others in the midst of difficulty and strife. Listen to how Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane speak of this. They say, This side of heaven, relationships and ministry, are always shaped in the forge of struggle. None of us get to relate to perfect people or avoid the effects of the fall on the work that we attempt to do. Yet, amid the mess, we find the highest joys of relationship and ministry. Hear me, hear me church. Following Jesus does not mean that our relationships will be untouched by the sin of the world nor the sin in our hearts. Certainly, as Jesus changes us over time through the power of his Holy Spirit, we will relate better. But we are being fitted for heaven where all relationships are restored. And we're not there yet. We're not home yet. But we'll be there one day where the struggle with sin has been cast away. The theme that rises about relationships is that living wisely in relationships means first living oriented to God, then oriented towards others. It's not going to come through a greater attention to yourself for relationships to improve. Your relationships will improve when you have a greater sense of self-forgetfulness. Which then does lead to another reality that the Proverbs lays out for our relationships. And we, some of us need to realize this, and it may work one of two ways. And it's this, you and I are not God and have limited relationship capacity. You and I are not God, and we have limited relationship capacity. So consider Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to, to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You need to know that only the Lord has unlimited relational energy and capacity. You and I do not. So our goal is not to have as many relationships as possible. 
but to cultivate the relationships the Lord has given us in the place he has located us. I think social media has been a big detriment to us in this. By labeling random internet acquaintances as friends and followers. Proverbs would would not classify those as real relationships. Now, this doesn't mean that we are closed off to new friendships. Don't hear me saying that. But rather that in wisdom, we are self-aware about how many relationships we can actually cultivate wisely. None of us have the relational capacity that God has. And so we all have differing levels of relational capacity as humans. So in this, we must heed the wisdom that helps us count not the quantity of our relationships, but the quality of the ones we are in. And even as we are outwardly focused in our relationships, the Proverbs also encourages us to exercise wisdom in choosing our companions. Consider these sayings, Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or stated clearly in the negative, Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. God does not shy away from instructing us to to find relationships that build us up in godliness and to shun relationships or avoid friendships that will lead us away from godliness. I mean, some of us may have to do the hard reality of considering our relationships and what we're cultivating and evaluate them by the wisdom of Proverbs. Now, I want to be really careful here because do not think that I'm telling you to remove yourself from the world or to shun all non-Christians in your life. Jesus prayed specifically that the Lord would sustain us in the midst of the world, not remove us from the world. But consider the pattern that we witness of Jesus and Paul. They certainly related to people who did not believe and shared the gospel with them. But as with the disciples... And then with Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and Epaphroditus, close relationships that walked with them over time were built upon shared devotion to the Lord. Wisdom in relationships means building relationships that press us to godliness. If you're not in a meaningful relationship with someone who is helping you follow Jesus, who encourages you, who prays for you, who desires to see you conformed into the image of Christ, I would tell you, you are missing out on one of the most precious gifts you can have in life and one that the Lord intends for you to have. You need someone with whom you can be weak, who will treat you with the tenderness of Christ. You need someone who can be weak with you, so that you might learn to show the tenderness of Christ. And certainly this principle extends to relationships we have with non-Christian friends and co-workers. We can show them the tenderness of Christ by holding out the gospel to them, telling them about Jesus. We can demonstrate wise living and godliness in how we live alongside them in our workplaces and our neighborhoods. As they see you live oriented towards God and the world through the holiness that you are pursuing, it's a signpost in front of them that your faith is in something greater than what theirs is. Someone greater than they are believing in. It's an example to them of what they too can have if they would trust Christ. 
Which leads to one final insight for this morning about living wisely in our relationships. God's wisdom for our relationships builds upon what we have discovered from our last two thematic sermons. Wisdom of the heart that proceeds in our speech. So consider these Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Or Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Living wisely in relationships is impossible if your words are not shaped by a heart being restored by God through His Spirit. Think about how many relationships, and maybe this is painful for you to think about. Think about how many relationships have been built or destroyed by words. I mean, James 2 speaks clearly of this tongue as a restless evil full of deadly poison. And yet at the same time, we saw just a few weeks back how our words serve to bring life to others, yet they can also bring death. As we apply what we have learned about using our words wisely, we find that our wisdom in relationships increases as we become the friend who gives faithful wounds, the friend who gives counsel that is sweet to those who hear it. This is why as a church, we are dedicated to building one another up with words as well as action. We know from Colossians chapter 3 that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We use our words wisely So that in our relationships, the wisdom of God is displayed as we relate to one another. We speak to God's word to to one another for the purpose of building one another up. And we do not cease to do the same thing in all of the relationships the Lord gives us. We labor to live wisely in relationships, even as we set our heart upon the Lord and speak his gospel to the world and to each other, imploring one another to live wisely. And one way that we are enabled to do this very thing is by receiving the comforting words from God when we gather as his people, even as we gather around his table. For the bread and the cup point to the wisdom of God and his redemption plan in a restored relationship that we can have with him, that we do have with him. That relationship, once severed by our sin, being restored and fully fully fixed, through the work of Jesus on the cross. I mean, this is what we celebrate each and every week when we come to the table. We celebrate the wisdom of God in the salvation he has given us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate restored communion with our maker and restored communion with one another, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of Christ.